We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McGeckron, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. My family never moved when I was growing up, and many of the kids I went to kindergarten with, I graduated high school with. I am one of those people that remembers everything from childhood, the conversations I had, the conversations other kids had, and all the antics everyone got into. Yes, I remember this all the way back to kindergarten. I think people are pretty well formed at a young age core personality attributes, inherent strengths, and weaknesses. I think I was fully formed as a person at about sixth grade. What I find interesting is how these core attributes affect how we connect with the world as an adult, our relationships, how we choose to spend our free time, and the work we pursue. Josh and I worked together at a digital agency in Boston. I was in project management, which means I would be responsible for delivering what was determined to be needed for our client. Josh, on the other hand, was responsible for figuring out what needed to be done, what problem needed to be solved. I am happy to share my conversation with my former coworker, Josh Teixeira. You said that you're very comfortable in figuring out the what needs to get done. Yeah, it seems almost like a, an innate urge. When I was a child, before I could read, I had a bookshelf next to my bed. And my parents came in one day to discover I had pulled all the books down off the shelf and rearranged them in order of height. Okay. Um, How old were you? The, um, God, I don't know. I had to be... I know I was older than two because we were in um, the house we moved into when I was two. So I, between two and four, maybe, I don't know, before, before I, like, I wouldn't alphabetize them because I wasn't able to recognize the, the alphabet yet, but I knew I could create a system <laughs> in which they were ordered by height. Um, and similarly on like Christmas morning, I would never play with my toys. I would create arrangements of all the toys that I had opened. So I'd create these like elaborate setups um with my matchbox uh cars i had like a ton of matchbox cars that was the only way like my 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 parents and i i had um a nanny as well that they could bribe me by going on errands by saying i'll get a matchbox at the end or whatever so we'd you know go wherever and go to kmart and i'd get a matchbox but it would take me hours to pick out the right one and then i would get home i would dump out all my matchbox cars i would align them by color and then put the new Matchbox in its proper place based on the color organization system. I remember in um, in high school, they gave us these um, like assignment books. I went to a Catholic school, and so they you know everyone had like the same assignment book, and you're supposed to write down your homework for each period, um, and then you take that home and then do that work and then cross it off. It wasn't enough for me to just like refer to what I had to do and do it. I had to use a straight edge ruler to cross off with a perfect line every box so that every page, if you went back in my assignment book, would be perfectly crossed off across every day, across every assignment. And I remember I worked at the time, um, this is weird, I worked at the uh, Catholic church that I went to. I worked in the rectory, like I answered the phones in the afternoon or whatever. And, And one of the priests there, like, 
he saw my assignment book and was like looking back at these weird, obsessive, meticulous um, cross out lines and was like, are you okay? <laughs> I'm very curious how yeah. this would affect your interaction with people. And the reason why I ask that is, yeah, I mean, I'm not like a psychologist or anything, but like every you're you're basically kind of taking control and making order out of things that you can. But when you're dealing with but when you're dealing with people, you can't. So does that cause did that cause you problems? Totally. It did. Totally, totally. It's caused me problems in all kinds of relationships where I can't um, control them because I think what it's driven by maybe is like fear of disorder or fear of chaos and yeah i'm trying to assert control over whatever domain that i can one of the most impactful meetings for me i was working at an agency um, and we were building an internal platform for a big technology company we had no business doing this doing this work we were scrappy you know Everyone's black t-shirts and beards and fixed gear bikes and stuff. We had no business, but like all of a sudden, like the CMO is of this huge global brand is, is like in our office. Right. And so I had to do what was called like a goal setting exercise because all of these executives had flown in, but they had never been in the same room with each other. So all I did was get them talking. And then I started to identify patterns mm-hmm. and repetitions and I created clusters and I organized all the things they were saying into groups. And those groups informed the goals for the platform. And I basically said like, okay, so we've now heard from all of you. Here's what I'm seeing emerge in terms of like what this thing needs to do, you know, connect people, inspire people, whatever, whatever those goals were. I can't remember the time. But by doing that organizational tactic, which I've been doing since I was an infant, yep. I was able to get these people that are like, thousands of light years above my pay grade to agree and see on the walls that they weren't all on the dip, on different pages. They actually could align if we just like got everyone talking and organizing those themes into things that were actionable. And so like, it's been, it's weird to see that kind of behavioral pattern that has obviously been innate. What do you think with that brain you would have done if you say were a pilgrim and you were a, a farmer? I, I either would have had the most meticulous, like well-oiled machine, or I would have over-organized my farm into like non-existence where like I would only be focused on the organizational structure of everything because that's like the downside of it is like I'll make lists of lists of lists mm. and none of those things get done. But because I've accounted for them in my list of lists, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. I'm going to cover that later. But really, it's just like a, um, an activity of organizing the chaos in the brain, I think. Yeah. Um, so my farm would have either been super rad and like good looking or it would have been like completely unproductive, but like obsessively ordered. that example you gave with the executives and all the chaos and you were able to, to normalize it and make sense of it. Like, that's amazing. That's, that's an incredible story. I think there's this concept of the things that 
our, our uniqueness and our strength yeah. can also have a flip side. I remember I heard Mike Tyson, of all people, oh talking about, I think he, he was talking about someone, he has a history of like substance abuse, mm-hmm. and he was talking about another celebrity. And I remember him saying that the things that make you really good in what you do yeah. are the same things that actually cause you to act in 100%. these addictive behaviors. I mean, it's a it's kind of like an age-old like Jekyll and Hyde story, right? Or like Two-Face, the villain from, from Batman. I've seen my OCD and my brain be really, really productive and like be a like breakthrough and like help like the, the story with the executives and stuff like that. Um, and then even in my creative writing and stuff like that, I've, I've seen my ability be productive. I've also seen it be completely <laughs> disruptive to, yeah. to every, to everyone around me. Like there's like a thousand half started notebooks in my apartment. My opinion on that though, is yeah. even if you have a million notebooks in an apartment filled, as long as you keep going and you get one of those ideas moving. Yeah, I feel you. It, I you feel know, it. I think, I think totally. that's really important. I don't think people should get hung up on you know, ideas that don't come to fruition. And uh, as long as something is happening, if you're not doing, if you're not doing anything, that's a problem. But but I think having that, those mental cycles of envisioning, flushing out, creating, trying, even trying, even failing, and then just keep going. It took me a long time to get comfortable, like getting dirty and fucking up, making mistakes even if my, I knew my idea or vision was, was true or, or something I want to pursue. And this could be creatively with like a, say a song or a poem or whatever, or it could be in a professional environment where I'm trying to like, you know, write a huge deck to like prove the value of our solution that we're going to go design and build and put in the world. Right. I, I, when I put pen to paper, I used to have this pressure that it had to like come out like fucking perfectly for some reason. But would it would it normally come up? I mean, were no. you able to make it come up close to perfect? Sometimes, once in a blue moon. Do you know what I mean? Like but once normally, in a blue moon, it would just like come out, and that would be what I would hang my hat on in terms of like that's what I should be doing all the time. And it took a long time for me to get comfortable um, with things being shitty. Um, and what's funny is actually like working working at um, working at IBM again, like learning to work in agile. Where like you only focus on like, you know, the MVP. It's a, so corny to apply a, that. A small piece. Work. Yeah, it's like what's the what's the smallest thing I can articulate well today, yeah. and then how can I build on that tomorrow? And being comfortable with all the messiness that gets to just being able to articulate that one thing. Yeah, you know, it's like I I think I had this like pressure on myself that I had to like just fucking like you know whip out <laughs> genius off the bat without putting any of the toil in. Um, yeah. that it takes to do creative work. I think a lot of people don't do anything because of that, yeah, because of what you I just agree. described. I There's agree. a lot of people that um, they talk and they're, they're able to sit back and criticize everybody else. Yeah. And they're probably right. Like their criticism is accurate, yeah. but they're not doing anything. Right. And because when you're producing something, you it's not always that great and no, you I oftentimes know. you have to you have to produce things that aren't that great to get something great so oh, let me just tell you about because uh, yeah, i'm very i'm very similar to you um and when i started painting that was one of the biggest lessons in that because yeah. when you start painting i knew i wanted to be a good painter yeah and i realized the only way to do it is to paint 
and I'm going to have to be painting stuff that isn't good. And it sucked. (laughs) And I hated it. And I would use the um, concept of snowboarding. Because Mm. when I first started snowboarding, it always sucks. But the only way to get good is to keep snowboarding. The problem with painting is it takes a really long time. And I was also doing more... Um, you know, representational art. Yep. So yep. like I'm painting yep. like a building. So yeah, yeah, it has, yeah. you it can has very quickly tell. Like I, building, I knew, yeah. <laughs> and I knew the quality that I wanted and I yeah. knew that I wasn't reaching it. Now, occasionally I would. Yeah. So that was a huge lesson for me yeah. in getting comfortable with that. And it wasn't just a lesson about art. Yep. It was a lesson about kind of life. And then in talking in this podcast, I realized like that's the key to in a lot of, in, with a lot of people and being successful is just being comfortable with just working hard and doing the best you can. I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't want to keep tying it back to our professional experience, but I think this is important because it's a lesson that I learned like the very hard way is that like the environments in which we work, like agencies, they, um, they, they, their trade, their trade craft is, um, is posture and presentation right? It's about faking it until you make it, blah, 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 whatever you want to say. And I had a very hard time. So I got very comfortable being messy at at IBM, like learning agile, learning true design process, like learning true collaborative process, learning that things shouldn't be perfect because that would be fucking obviously wrong because we haven't tested it with anybody. Like those kinds of methodologies. When I went back to agency world, I got like really like hit in the face, like, like executives were like, why am I looking at this incomplete deck? I'm like, well, it's incomplete because the thoughts are incomplete. We're supposed to work on them together and build them up so that when we present them to the client, they're complete. But like what I learned was I was jumping through a bunch of internal sort of judgmental, what you're talking about, like with critics, right? Like, yeah, I would have to present a pristine perfect like deck that I didn't believe in any of the ideas. I hadn't done the due diligence to like think through it. I haven't tested it with customers. I haven't like learned anything. I'm just presenting a deck and because it looks pretty and because I'm a good writer, I can make it sound good. (laughs) They think it's well, great. Good to go. Let's go. And so that was a, that was a a struggle. I'm still going through it now. Um, Finally got comfortable with work being imperfect, whether it's creative or whether it was professional work. I got comfortable with the idea that like, this is collaborative work. Let's all make a mess together and then we'll polish it up when it needs to be presented or reviewed or right. Now, when I went back into agency world, I realized, especially larger agency world, that's not how it works. Like if you come into a meeting with like the fucking ECD and you're the fucking experience strategist, that deck better be (laughs) like polished up. Even though the thoughts in the deck have not been verified, validated, or thoughtfully investigated, as long as it like, like as long as it like looks and sounds good, fine. But if right. it looks imperfect, then it looks sloppy. Instead, what I realize is the sloppiness is the doing of the work. The thing that got me excited about your story was when you started talking about being a little kid. Because because that example is showing like the true Josh, like who yeah. you are. It's yeah. before you could read, and oh, like yeah. that's how your brain works. And I totally. find that 
interesting how whether we're talking about your job or whether you're talking about your creativity where that brings people my mom really encouraged any of my creative endeavors like i i as i mentioned i was really into like um drawing um when i was a kid so my mom um you know signed me up for classes at museum of fine arts um and i would do like these summer classes when i was like you know eight nine ten whatever you know go every week to museum of fine arts get behind the scene tours and they really really encouraged it at the same time growing up in boston of course um, everyone is obsessed with baseball, and I happen to be good at baseball, which I think made me free from being picked on, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I yeah, could be totally. obsessed with like music and poetry and stuff, but I had enough jockiness that <laughs> I could I could get away with it. Um, baseball was like a religion in my family, which like many Boston families, right? Um, yeah. But my grandmother was my grandmother was like super super tight with with me. She was obsessed with the Red Sox, obsessed with the Red Sox. So I became obsessed with the Red Sox. And then, um, yeah, I don't know. I was good at it. I, I, I don't know. I wasn't like a huge like home run hitter, like a big dude. I was pretty small, but I had like really good eyesight. And I also somehow got like a weird bit of like creative expression from like my swing or how I feel the ball or like how I'd wear my uniform. I don't know. It was almost like part theater, part like part athletics. You know, I ended up playing Little League just because I knew I was the only boy and I had all sisters and I was the only boy. And I'm like, ugh, I know they want me to play Little League. Like, yeah. I, I do not want to do this, my but I'm just going to... like that. I am going to do it. <laughs> and I did it. And I never got it. Like, it never connected this. I don't... And so, so I'm curious how what it was about it that I don't know there's something cultural about it that I did I don't know maybe I latched onto it because of my grandmother or just because I don't know it seemed like more of the church in Boston than the actual church um but then there's also I don't know man like there's something beautiful about the physical mechanics of like the swing and like being able to like tee up a ball and know that you hit it square um, there's something awesome that I loved about like the, maybe this is back to my OCD, but like when, you know, like, like 90% of baseball isn't playing the game. It's like practicing, doing drills, doing batting practice. Like there's something repetitious, um, where you're trying to perfect like exactly how you catch the ball with two hands, the right crow hop, the way you, you know, the way the you're supposed to throw the ball mechanics wise. Um, again, with, with batting, like the way that you stand, like, look at that. Remember, remember Nomar Garcia Parra? Mm-hmm. Like he had this incredible, weird, every pitch routine where he would tap both toes to get his feet into the, into the cleats. He would open and then close his batting gloves and he would do that like three or four times and then he would be ready to go. There's something like insanely, uh, OCD about baseball that I think appealed to me. I remember I was on this um, trip to Arizona. I would go to Arizona. They would pick kids from like the North Shore every year to go to Arizona because Arizona, obviously, you can play baseball all year. So we would go. It was like spring training for high school kids that were good at baseball. Uh, we were in Tucson. So we were staying in Phoenix to play baseball. We would have like, you know, all day long baseball drills during February vacation. We went to Tucson to see University of Arizona play, and Pearl Jam's first album came out that day. 
And I knew it because I was listening obsessively to like um, Emerson College Radio, like college radio, listening to all these weird underground bands and stuff. And right before the bus left to go back to Phoenix, which is a super long ride, I, I ran out of the bus and ran to like, I saw a record store across the street and I bought the tape so I could listen to it on my Walkman all the way back to Phoenix. And like on the bus, like these kids were like, oh, what is that fucking kill your father, kill your mother music, this fucking freak, like blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, I'm like on an elite, like athletic trip with other elite athletes, but I'm the weirdo because I bought a Pearl Jam record. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's a, a very big part of my life, but I was able to combine that with like still being passionate about um, music and, and writing and everything. So I think I got into poetry through like song lyrics. I think sadly, <laughs> sadly, I think I started like actively writing um, because of like my first breakup when I was like 14 or something like that. Um, but I had already been obsessed with like music and I would study the lyrics, I would study the liner notes, like, and I started like exploring that. And then from there, um, you know, again, going to like a private school and stuff, like we had like an awesome English department that I was able to explore and sort of start to read other other poets and realize that that's actually like a school of thought and a school of creativity. Um, and then, yeah, at, 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 at Syracuse at the time, the English department was insane. Mary Carr, um, Stephen Dobbins. Um, it was just like, like famous, famous, famous authors were just the professors at class. Okay. It was crazy. Uh, when, so, when did you decide that you were going to minor in poetry? Because it's one thing to be writing yeah. lyrics about your first breakup. Um, no, I know, and, you I know, know, you know, and it's another thing to even get into the, you know, reading the lyrics back when there were albums that you could read them on. No, but it's another totally. thing to actually be a minor in college. Yeah, no, I know. And actually be studying with like published, active, famous, like poets and authors. Right. Like it was it was wild. Um, I, you know, I would say, yeah, maybe it maybe it maybe it first blossomed with that breakup. But but but. I explored it throughout high school and I had like uh, this friend, Bill, um, Bill Bradford from Bill Ricca, <laughs> Bill from Bill Ricca. Um, and he is the best to this day, the best writer I think I've ever, maybe him and my other friend, um, Billy, also named Billy. That's funny. I never thought of that. Um, that he was also writing poetry and he was like a fucking star hockey player. So he was a weird enigma like me where we're like, we're kind of athletes, but also like weird, you know, creative nerds. So I explored it throughout high school. When I got to Syracuse, I was lucky enough to be put into some like honors program. And they had this course of study called English textual studies that was only available to those that were in the, the honors program. And you could, you could focus on an area within English textual examination that you wanted to focus on. It could be semantics. It could be debating it could be journalism and i was obviously drawn to poetry so i focused on poetry and made that my minor um and then there was a there was a poet named michael burkhard he is not well known um but he's incredible um and he kind of became like my sherpa a little bit like i had him in class um he was my professor and um i would go to his office hours and stuff and show him my raw notebooks and stuff and he actually, like, he started Xeroxing my raw notebooks, and he, like, sent them to the New Yorker and the Atlantic to try to get them, like, published. They didn't get published as fine for the best. But what he was enjoying was I was using an illustration notebook. So, like, 
a big heavy grade paper that like an illustrator would use. Like I would use when I was a kid, like going to art class. And I was writing like deconstructed poems all over the multifold pages. So it wasn't like creating verses or anything like that. It was just like phrases and chunks of words that I would then like edit into something co cohesive or cogent um, on like the other page. So he was more interested in like the map of madness that I was just like using an illustration book to write, um, to write poems. And so that really um, inspired me um, to keep, keep exploring it. Those pages where it was just like chunks of stuff. Are you comfortable yeah. doing that? Um, with the OCD and everything being buttoned up, are you okay? Just it's writing like it's that. It's funny that it's funny because like, I'm not, I'm only now, again, this is why I say this is great. This is like therapy, but like, I'm only now connecting the fact that I had been comfortable doing that in other mediums, but like doing that at work was not ever comfortable for me for a long time. Like everything would have to be like perfectly crafted out the gate, but the intent of me using an illustrator's notebook and I also, to this day, I still use um, Micron because they felt better on the heavy grade like illustration paper. Yeah. Um, God, I wish I had that notebook, man. Uh, but I wish yeah, you did. Seemed, Can you I find know, it? I might be able to. Because I actually, I, I actually might be able to. I'm right. going to look right after this call for sure. Uh, but it's, what I'm connecting now, the dots, is that it seems like I was very comfortable in that medium. And I think what I did was I intentionally chose an illustrator's notebook and an illustrator's tool to do writing to 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 throw off the um to throw off the rules mm -hmm. right I'm like this is an illustrator's notebook i don't know i'm writing poetry look it's a mess ha ha you know like to maybe like try to convince myself to be okay with the mess my best friend at the end of college um is a very successful illustrator who also um, at the time was taking a lot of acid and writing a lot of like what he thought were terrible, but I thought they were amazing poems. And um, just recently during this past year, somehow, like we had lost touch and stuff, we reconnected and we uh, collaborated on a piece where I wrote a poem and he did a drawing and we were in some gallery opening in London. Obviously we couldn't travel for it, um, but there were a hundred um, basically postcards of like a painting or a drawing with a poem that accompanied. And he and I were part of that. And so it was a group show, um, but it was a very nice culmination to our friendship and the story I'm telling about like how poetry has kind of like followed me along the way, including now being in a group exhibit with my college best friend. <laughs> the notebooks I keep, I have, um, you know, a bigger one and then I keep a pocket one. The front, it's like a mullet. There's business in the front, party in the back. Um, <laughs> so if things strike me throughout the day, I use the back to just jot down, you know, um, lines and thoughts and just loose, loose, I don't know, poems. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Like I play with phrases a lot. I play with sounds a lot. I'll play with an idea. I don't write about breakups anymore, which is great. Um, and so as those things occur to me, which they happen naturally, I'll just jot them down to save them for later. And then I'll move them into a big, I have a big ongoing Google Doc that is just like raw dump of notes. And then I turn it into a refined, this is sad, but I use like a slide deck metaphor. I use Google Slides and I turn it, just got like the orientation of the page better. And I'll edit my raw notes into something that I feel good enough to show 
like my friend or my girlfriend or whatever. You know what I mean? It's it, it, yeah. none of it's ready for like prime time, but I do, but I have a process. I, and I let it bubble up naturally. And it sounds like this poetry is something else that is like core to who you are. Yeah. Like it, it sounds like, like it's it. very, it's a very it deep part. Like it. It's a very deep part of you. Yeah. Yeah. If it's not something again, like the fact that I don't carve out time to just like think up things and the fact that they occur to me and they occur to me in such a way that I feel like I have to capture them. It feels, it feels like an instinct. It doesn't feel like something I've learned or set out to do, Yep. which is both like lazy, but it's also interesting for me to explore in terms of why does that happen? Why do these phrases occur to me? Like, why do I turn a moment or like a, a, a site into a turn of phrase? And why do I play with that? You know? Yeah. And I, I don't quite know yet. So Josh, it sounds like your life I'm kind of like summarizing oh everything. Uh, no, but it, it sounds like the life that you live or you've lived in your career and your interests, they kind of are allow you to express who you are. So for instance, if you were born in Pittsburgh and you had to go to a steel mill, yeah. you know, and work, yeah, yeah. A, you know, seven days a week yeah. and you never got a day off. So you couldn't do poetry. You couldn't do music. You couldn't coordinate with all the executives you're like working in a steel mill you would be completely stifled and it sounds like you are able to like be you you're right circumstance is a lot i i i think about like my dad though right like my dad's a floor guy you know he does like carpets and rugs and tiles and shit um but at the same time he makes like time um every weekend for himself to go out to nahant to the beach, even in the like dead of winter and just sit by himself, get away from my mom, <laughs> get away from like doing rugs. He doesn't, he doesn't actively write poems or express, but he has that soul. He wrote me a poem for like my 10th birthday. I remember like he has that spirit. And so, and so he, um, he definitely finds a space to connect with that part of himself, even though most of his time is spent at a fucking construction site with a bunch of idiots like putting the floor in. Do you know what I mean? And so I don't know if I've done a good job of that. I'm lucky in that like, you know, you know, like in like the offices that, you know, we've worked in, it's fun and creative and cool. And like, I can, I have my notebook. I can spend five minutes, put my headphones on and like write a poem without pissing anyone off. No one knows what I'm doing. It's fine. So I have that luxury. And also I would say that like, I feel two ways about that. Was that like a lot of my career and a lot of my um, creativity feels in some ways to me because it feels in- instinctual, it feels accidental. And that's why I feel bad about not carving out time to write. Like you're talking about your painting, right? And like you're going to paint a bunch of shit that's going to be crap, but you're going to maybe have a breakthrough and paint something that's awesome. I don't give myself the time to practice because I've always let it bubble up. And, you know, like even when I worked at like, I worked, my first real job was at an investment bank doing like UX and content and stuff for the digital tools we were building for the team. Um, Like my coworkers would catch me writing poems at my desk and stuff. So it has allowed me the ability for that stuff to bubble up. I haven't had to, you know, isolate myself and go to Nahant (laughs) by myself with a book like my dad. So I've been lucky in that way. Um, And in some ways, you're right to say, 
that a lot of what you know about me is really me. Like I'm definitely hard on my sleeve kind of person, so much so that it's bitten me in the ass in work environments because like I always went in there with like too much of a goofy um, spirit of like, yeah, it's us versus the world and let's figure this out. And I let too much of that freak flag show a little bit. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I don't know. I guess at this point I kind of wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you, Josh, very much. This was really, really cool talking to you in this way. Obviously, we've talked working together over the years, but this was a very unique interaction and communication. I agree. It's been it's been great to reconnect, and it's been really interesting exploring this um, with you. Hopefully, I can turn the mic around uh, next time and, and find out more about what you're up to. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast. 